Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test based in Annapolis, Maryland. Reconnecting knowledge and virtue. Visit us at cltexam.com. Hello, welcome back to the CLT offices. We're glad you're here. Today, we're excited to have part two of our conversation with Dr. Cornell West. If this is your first time joining us, I'd like to take a little bit of time to explain what Anchored is. This is a program where our CEO, Jeremy Tate, engages in conversations with leading thinkers on topics at the intersection of education and culture. As always, we at CLT greatly appreciate your feedback, so please rate and review this episode and send any questions or comments to anchored at cltexam.com. Don't forget, February 2nd is the last day to register for the CLT 10, which is our alternative to the PSAT. The CLT 10 is a great way to see where your students are academically and gain access to scholarship dollars. Learn more about the CLT 10 and register at cltexam.com. Now, without further ado, let's get on to the conversation. I mean, the, the difference, though, between uh, doxa and episteme or even um, wisdom and information becomes very important. These days, we draw the distinction between wisdom and smartness. You know, I tell the students all the time, let the phones be smart, you be wise. Meaning what? Meaning that this is not a new phenomenon, it's just on a much massive, more massive scale. But there's always been the tendency to think that, uh, that information and uh, uh, access to uh, immediate facts or pseudo facts in our, in our day uh, uh, somehow is a stepping stone toward deeper and more genuine wisdom. See, wisdom is much more about a mature judgment that flows from a character and soul that has undergone a certain kind of formation and maturation. And it's very, I mean, Plato, you know, it's very platonic in that sense. I mean, you can accept the great insights of Plato without being a Platonist, you know. Uh, uh, but it is a, it Plato's conception of education. And you see it in many religious traditions all around the world that all of them have various sages or have figures of sagacity and wisdom who themselves have decided to undergo intense forms of maturation and training and education and access to certain kinds of ways of wrestling with the mysteries of the world, of history and of life. And nearly every culture we know has that. Uh, but it, but the legacies of Athens and the legacies of Jerusalem have such highly uh, um, cultivated and sophisticated ways of wrestling with these distinctions between wisdom and information, or you know, in the end, really between um, wisdom and power. Because see, information is something to be manipulated. You see, you, you can't manipulate wisdom. That's why nobody ever fully possesses it. You're in pursuit of it. And the benchmark in the end, and this is where the, the, the deeper greatness of Athens and Jerusalem come. The benchmark is humility. See, Socrates has an intellectual integrity and intellectual humility. Jesus, Moses, intellectual Humility, 
I don't understand what's going on with that bush. It just keeps burning. It keeps burning. I've got to recognize there's limits to my comprehension. You don't say, Moses. <laughs> you don't say, Moses. Look like I'm not going to fit. You know, the Egyptians won't accept me. The Jews won't accept me. I'm in, but not of this world. I'm called for something, but people don't understand it. I go for revelation. They come back break dancing in front of a golden calf. Even my brother Aaron is in on it. What the heck is going on? You don't say, Moses. You have been one of the sagacious ones who must be in the world, but not of it. I do all this work and I still can't get to the promised land. No, you a crack vessel like everybody else, Moses. Sorry about that. Mm. Wow, how difficult it is to have the genuine intellectual and spiritual humility along with spiritual and intellectual and moral tenacity. Because mm. humility doesn't mean that you're impotent. You're fortified. You see, when you fortify, you fructify. And information is about foliage. Paideia, wisdom, is about fruit. By your fruit, you shall know them. Not by your foliage, you shall know them. No, no, foliage is a superficial stuff that could be manipulated, usually tied to power, status, to be weaponized in an easy way. These days, people talk about identity. What's your identity? Your identity, tell me what kind of moral and spiritual integrity, tell me what kind of all-embracing solidarity your identity facilitates. You're not saying nothing if you just talk about your identity. Gangsters come in all colors. Thugs come in all genders. And all of us fallen creatures anyway, no matter what gender or sexual orientation or whatever, you see. And so the real challenge here is, my brother, that the uh, all of this new technology and all of these new instrumentalities, they still take us to the same fundamental questions raised by legacies of Athens. We talked about Homer. We didn't say too much about Sophocles and Aristophanes. We didn't say too much about Aeschylus. We didn't say too much about Sappho. They're part of the same legacy of Athens in that way. But they all go together. So you can't talk about canceling or banding or, or, or pushing any one of them out. You see. Uh, uh, because they, they constitute the conversation, the crucial conversation, you see. We haven't had a chance to talk too much about Virgil. We haven't had a chance to talk to, even though we talked about Dante, but not. So that all of these, Horace, Pender, all of these folk are crucial voices in the conversation. And then we have our own voices. And of course, as these voices become more uh, contemporary, uh, we begin to see that it's got to be global. It's got to be international. But in a certain sense, at its best, it was always connected to the global. It was always connected to the international because it was humanistic. What kind of creatures are we? No matter what context you find yourself, you see. But you got to keep in mind too that um, you shouldn't get too discouraged. You know, we should never be surprised by evil or paralyzed by despair. Things have always looked as if there's just a little flickering candle against the backdrop of escalating barbarism and grimness. That's the history of the human condition. Mm 
It really is. It's the history of the human condition. It's just folk who fell for a certain kind of uh, very narrow, uh, we call it cheap enlightenment optimism, that they would be in shock. Oh, my God, World War One! Hey, people have been fighting wars from the beginning. Oh, my God, we got racism still around, white supremacy still exists. What are you talking about? It's these various forms of ethnic and tribal hatred, hating Jews for 2,500 years, trashing Muslims and Turks. And this is part of who we are as human beings. The question is, who are you going to be in light of the worst of the history and the best of the history? Mm. So don't be surprised. Get fortified. Don't get paralyzed. Be part of networks, communities, friends that are trying to keep alive the quest for excellence and arete, and virtue, and goodness, and justice. Oh, and you only got one life to live. So, so you got to decide and hold on and be true. And, and the important thing to keep in mind, too, you know, there's a wonderful essay by Josiah Royce in defense of provincialism, that provincialism is very different than parochialism. But when you go back to your roots on the vanilla side of North Carolina, you know, North Carolina's John Coltrane country, you know that. But, uh, but when you when you when you go back to your roots on the vanilla side of North Carolina, that they, the the provincial, the roots are still very important, even as you make critical judgments. The best of the roots and the worst of the roots, but it's still very important. You see, so don't think you become cosmopolitan and international. You cut off all your roots. No, 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 no. There's a dialectical interplay between the R O O T S and the R O U T E S. And the routes that you take, the kinds of cosmopolitan exposure that you have is in interplay with the best of your roots and the worst of your roots. Mm. You hold on to mama and grandmama and granddaddy and so forth in North Carolina because they got they gave you something that the world didn't give you. But at the same time, the routes that you take are going to be different than theirs. That they never went to college. You did. Maybe they didn't go around the world. You did. Wow, Tyler got something going on from from folks in North Carolina. Ooh, that's exactly right. He's finding his voice. He wants to be a person of integrity, honesty, decency, and a force for good. And your your parents and grandparents, they had their own quest like that. You can be a force for good in small town North Carolina. You might not be reading Homer every third day, but I mean... (laughs) You 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 could be a force for good. You're probably reading the Bible, so you still got access to great literature, and maybe the King James version. So it's not like they're reading, you know, Hebrew and Aramaic and, and the Koine Greek. But but they got they got a beautiful translation. That's, that's great literature. That still forms of the excellence in terms of you know biblical text in that. But it's to be critically discerned. You know, there's some things in there. You got some genocides in that Hebrew scripture. That, uh, that that you have to be mindful of, and you got wonderful formulations about spreading hesed, spreading that steadfast love to orphan and widow and motherless and fatherless, that constitute great moral revolutions in the history of the species. But before the worms get you, that is a, that is a chilling phrase. You've used that a few times, and it, and it kind of gives me the goosebumps all over. But it shows our common humanity. You see, this is exactly what Homer and the others are getting at. 
That's what they're getting at. They said, of course, we got to view this from the vantage point of Greece. Of course, we've got our own language that we get from the Phoenicians. Very important. Semitic people. They yeah. provide the alphabet, right? So you already got cultural hybridity. You're not talking about nothing pure. We're talking about Greece. It's relation to the Africa's relation to the Middle East and so forth. But there was a particular unbelievable explosion, an intellectual revolution that took place in Athens. Another one took place in Jerusalem. Now they've taken place in other places too, in Africa and Asia and so forth. But those two particular ones have been fundamental in the formation, the intellectual and moral formation of the species. And it has much to do with wrestling with how to live and how to die. And at that point, it doesn't make any difference what color, what gender, what sexual orientation you have. It doesn't make any difference whether you're conservative or whether you're left wing. You left wing and read Dostoevsky, he's still gonna mess you up. <laughs> you right wing and read Dostoevsky, he's still gonna mess you up. Yeah. The most powerful indictment of Christianity and the Christian faith written by who? A Christian himself, mm. Dostoevsky. Brothers Karamazov, read, reread. Oh my God, that's just the Western canon being fetishized. No, no, no. That's life being engaged. Wow. Yeah. Wrestle with. When the folk who are pushing out Homer, we'd have to ask, well, who are they replacing Homer with? Mm. If they're replacing Homer with Toni Morrison, then we say both and. You see what I mean? If they're replacing Homer with, you know, some mediocre middle brow so-and-so, then no matter what, it's Homer. So we know we're with Homer no matter what. But if they're really replacing Homer with somebody who also was at a level of excellence, you say, well, you know, we do have something in common because yeah. we notice, you know, you you, you want to read Ralph Ellison. Mm. Ellison is a, he represents excellence too. We're tied to excellence too. And, and in fact, there is no Ellison without Joyce. There's mm. no Joyce without Homer. We actually need to get on the excellence train together. You know, brother Jeremy and Tyler, they're tied to certain truths, but they're conservatives. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Conservatives could be tied to certain truths. But you're talking about, and, and you know, they, 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 they could talk about, I mean, some of these folk, for example, would resonate with what I say about Coltrane. And I say, you ain't got no monopoly on Coltrane. Tyler and Jeremy understand excellence in music, too. They understand Beethoven and Mozart. They understand Brahms. They understand Stephen Sondheim. They, um, there's different forms of excellence that we're keeping track of. So then they have to rethink and say, dang, I'm not supposed to be agreeing with these dang conservatives about nothing. <laughs> how, how, how are they telling me that I want Tony Morrison on that curriculum no matter what? And you're saying, Hey, Tony Morrison's excellent. And she's excellent not because Nobel Prize said so, but because the text is rich. You know what I mean? In, in that way. And, and that's one of the ways that Robbie and I, in our uh, travels all around the country, end up surprising people. Because they end up agreeing with Robbie on things that they just knew they would never, ever, ever, ever agree. Because truth is bigger than all of us. Yeah. Yeah, none of us have a market on it. That's for sure. None of us have, but you all see the point I'm making about the both and. Yeah. If that second 
person who they, they want to read is at a high level. Uh, uh, you know, another way of putting it, too, is, is that, you know, we remind folks that there, there were uh, a significant number of mediocre thinkers in Athens. You see, it's not like just to be Athenian means that you're going to be Socrates or Aristophanes or something. No, no. We, we, we got some Socratic figures, you know, who they decent and all right. They'd get tenured, you know, different places, Harvard and Duke and so on. But they're not Socrates. We're only talking about the creme of the creme of the creme of Athens. You got a whole lot of folk in Jerusalem mediocre to the core they still precious mediocre to the core they're not moses they're not amos they're not jesus so that you know get people begin to see oh so you don't really think that it's just a matter of elevating these white people these european people no excellence cuts across you see what i mean it cuts across that the gotta take Cuts across. That's why they had the discussions about excellence, because Socrates is running into all of these politicians who don't know what the heck they're talking about. What is courage in the like? Oh, I thought I knew what it was. Well, uh, uh, Cephalus, what is justice? Well, I'm an old man. You know, I ain't got too much time to be pushing these definitions. I give you a little one. And when Socrates come back, I, I got to go. See, there's a lot of Cephaluses in Athens. You know what I mean? And so in that sense, it, it humanizes and contextualizes mm. what we're doing in the name of the truths and, 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 and our quest for goodness and beauty that we're after. Because the worst thing you want is for them to try to dismiss the significance of what you're doing just because you are conservative. Because mm. that's a conversation stopper for so many people. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, uh, but you all see what I, I know. You already thought about all this stuff I'm talking about anyway. But I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm just mentioning this just as ways of trying to uh, make you all even more fortified and being forces for good, given the kind of dismissals that can easily come your way. I tell you, you know, in the midst of this grimness, it's very, you know, I was reading. Oh, yeah. You know, he was the one that was the one of the founders of the. Uh, CC class at Columbia, Contemporary Civilization. And uh, he taught there for about 40 years. And that's the class that he taught. And it is a hell of a class and text. Once young folk get exposed to that, because he, he goes step by step, you know, it's not one of these highly convoluted, jargon-ridden texts. It's very, very clear, step by step by step, you see. And it, yes, it's written in the 40s and so forth. So, you know, you have to contextualize it and what have you. But at least you get the clarity. Because these days it's hard for young people to get the clarity vis-a-vis the text. Because so much of the literary criticism is just jargon written. It's, it's, and it's just self-indulgent. It's just not respectful and humble before the text itself. What Gadamer would call the sense of humility before the subject matter rather than the subject extending their will to intellectual power over the subject matter, where what is visible is the critic, him or herself, rather than the genius in the text. Mm. See, that's the dominant form of literary criticism these days. And so you have to 
be very mindful of that and reading a lot of that stuff, you see. But what you all are saying is, look, you know, these conferences and so forth, that we, we've got some uh, serious uh, shifts to make in terms of the frameworks to get at the best of the text, because the texts are unsettling. I'm sorry to go on and on and on, but I'm just so excited about what you're doing. Now, at CLT, we we have a real reading culture here. We always love to end our our podcast uh, with asking our guests the same question uh, of what text has been most formative, influential on you. Maybe it's a text that you come back to every year. And if there's just one that you would recommend to our audience to say, you've got to read this. What is it for you? Mm, oh, it's a wonderful question. Well, one, you got to keep in mind, though, brother, that for me, <clears throat> that I think, and Plato understood this very well, that uh, our thinking and philosophy goes to school not just with text and not just with poetry, but it goes to school with, with music. It goes to school with musicians, you see. Uh, uh, remember that sign right in front of the academy? You had to know geometry to get in, but geometry for him was inseparable from music, the harmonies, the symmetries. You see, remember Plato himself, Eric Vogler reminds us, right? When he dies, he bans the flute in the Republic, right? But he's got the flute under the pillow and he tells the Thracian girl to play the flute. And she says, I can't find the rhythm. And with his finger, he just goes with the measure. Mm-hmm. She plays music and the great Plato dies. So that music itself is a kind of text. And so for me, Chekhov and John Coltrane go hand in hand. So you read the Bishop and you read the Petroth, or you read In the Ravine by the great Chekhov. He is the great literary artist of the late modern world. Shakespeare begins, Chekhov ends. The postmodern moment, that's something else. You got a mess, all kind of, all kind of decline and decay sets in. But with Chekhov, you've got this. Deeply, deeply secular. He's a medical doctor, of course. He's uh, 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 he's been shaped by Christianity, but he, he gives up on Christian consolation. But he's deeply tied to love. You know, he goes to church and he has tears flowing down his eyes. He says, "Oh, it's too beautiful to be true." Wittgenstein says the same thing. There's something about this Christian story that moves me at the deepest level, but I can't believe the conclusion. What does that mean then, Anton? It means that intellectually, because he's a Darwinian, intellectually I engage the world with the honesty that I can muster, but I know in the end it's about how can compassionate persons endure in the midst of so much suffering. And with John Coltrane's Love Supreme, you get the musical enactment of that Chekhovian commitment to profound compassion and endurance in the midst of overwhelming hurt and pain and suffering and, and misery, really. Uh, and so in that, in, that, in that way, really, I think the Coltrane Chekhov would go hand in hand. It hard, it's hard to answer your question in terms of just one text unless we understand uh, the music itself was a kind of textuality mm. and the musicality in Shakespeare's own text itself and the musicality in Plato. Dr. West, uh, we really can't thank you enough for being on the program. And we really can't thank you enough as well for just your work and being uh, an example of civil dialogue, uh, loving people across the political aisle. Uh, America needs you. We are, are so grateful to you. 
Uh, we'd love to have you on again in the future. Well, you all just hold on to your quest for excellence and keep that love in your heart. You're always embracing everybody, but making sure that you never have to apologize for excellence or greatness, even though the definition of those terms are all embracing for cultures. They're certainly not all embracing in terms of particular items. We have to be able to make discerning judgments. Much is at stake if we don't. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe. And if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share with friends and colleagues. Look forward to having you join us next week. CLT, reconnecting knowledge and virtue.